please be seated. <clears throat> and as you take your seat, you can get your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11 this morning. Jeremiah 13, 1 through 11. It is, incidentally, the first scripture reading in your bulletin, if you'd like to follow along there. We're going to look at the subject of clinging to God on this second Sunday after the Epiphany. The Lord appeared to the Gentiles, to the three kings, or the three wise men, signifying the reap beyond the borders of Israel. So that all who come into the kingdom of God are charged not to simply know Him and be delivered by Him in salvation, but also to cling to Him, to abide in Him throughout their lives. This was the message that Jeremiah gave in this particular passage to the Israelites. And the prophet Jeremiah lived at a very, very difficult time in Israel's history. The northern kingdom, or Israel had fallen, and he would speak on behalf of the Lord to the southern kingdom for approximately 40 years, leading up to the exile to Babylon, where God's people would be hauled off and live for 70 years in exile in a foreign country. It's kind of pitiful to watch. Jeremiah has often been called the weeping prophet. As you read the different stories, that are in the book, you see a prophet who is weeping over the condition of God's people. As they go further and further from him, and God has been very patient to try to bring them back to him, but eventually he decides they're going into exile. And even there, he exercises his love and grace as they go. Now, God's people are going into exile because of three major reasons. Number one, foreign alliances. Foreign alliances. You see, God's people, instead of looking to the Lord for deliverance and protection, they wanted a God they could see. And so they looked to their neighbors, to Assyria, to Babylon, and even to Egypt. One of the tragedies of the human condition, the fall into sin, is that we do want a God that we can see. But our God wants us to operate by faith. And faith is the substance of things hoped for and things that cannot be seen. And so they formed these foreign alliances. Secondly, they had false religion. Things and conditions had degenerated so much, they believed that the presence of the temple in Jerusalem meant that they were secure, no matter how much they sinned. You can see all about this in uh, Jeremiah chapter 7. The people would go and they would sin, they would lie and steal and commit adultery, and then they would run to the temple and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You kind of sing a little ditty. And they would convince themselves that because they were God's chosen people, the Jews, that all they had to do was run to the temple and that everything would be fine. It was a false religion. It was a religion of symbol but not substance. And whenever you have symbol without substance, ladies and gentlemen, you have something that could lead to your demise. Well, they had false alliances and false religion, but also rampant idolatry. Uh, Israel's foreign alliances led the people of God to engage in the worship practices of these foreign nations. 
And they were very, very pagan. The Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Egyptians. The Egyptians worshipped all kinds. They had thousands of gods, beetle gods and monkey gods and every other kind of animal. And the people of God found themselves going in that direction. You can read about that as they engaged in these worship practices of these pagan nations. Now, added to this mess, furthermore, the land was full of false prophets. Jeremiah was a man who was commissioned to give a very difficult message. And he was amongst people who spoke of prosperity and peace. God is not going to send us into exile. Don't listen to Jeremiah. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Jeremiah's words of doom and gloom and destruction were never very pleasant to hear in light of these numerous false prophets which the Lord didn't send. So Jeremiah spoke the word of the Lord boldly, but he also was called upon God to live out, symbolize, that is, God's message to his people uh, through various and often unusual activities. And that's what we have an example of in Jeremiah 13. It's a parable. But instead of just telling a story, God commissions Jeremiah to act it out. To act it out. And so the passage falls into two simple and uh, easy to follow portions. Number one, we have the actual parable, and that is in verses 1 through 7. And then we have the application of that parable in verses 8 through 11. And if I could put a bullet statement on this message, it would be this. God's people must cling to Him, or they will find themselves clinging to something else which cannot deliver or satisfy. Along with a synopsis of the message, let's bow in prayer and ask God to bless our time of study together. Heavenly Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Father, for your name's sake, I pray that you would move on our hearts, and eventually toward our benefit, that, Lord, we may be led in a way that is pleasing to you, that our lives might adorn the gospel. Lord, thank you for this time. Bless us now as we study your word together. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first of all, the parable in verses 1 through 7. God tells Jeremiah to engage in a living parable which God will use as a symbol to speak to his people. So he tells them to take a linen waistband or buy a linen waistband. That is a belt. And this was something that would be very colorful. In fact, the uh, linen waistband was something you find in Leviticus 16.4. It was a priestly accessory. And remember, the priests were given clothing to show God's glory. It would demonstrate the beauty and the glory of God. And so, here is this grubby prophet, and the Lord says, Go get this belt, this linen waistband, and do not put it in water. So you could see Jeremiah walking around with this very colorful, very uh, decorative waistband against the backdrop of his ugly clothing, most likely. As a prophet of God, they never dressed um, extravagantly. So imagine this brightly covered linen belt on Jeremiah. And he's told to wear the waistband and go to 
the Euphrates. Now, on a technical note, older translations render the word Euphrates, the Euphrates River. The problem is it's about four or 500 miles away. Now, contemporary translations transliterate the Hebrew letters that reads Parat, which was a small village about three miles from Jeremiah's hometown of Anatol. Nevertheless, on one hand, the Euphrates would speak volumes because the Israelites were going into captivity with the Babylonian invasion and the exile of God's people. The bottom line is we really don't know which location it is, but it doesn't really matter because it doesn't affect the substance of the parable. Jeremiah might have gone that 500-mile journey to the Euphrates, or he may have simply gone about three miles north of his town to hide this waistband. Anyway, Jeremiah is told to put the waistband in the crevice of a rock. And the Bible says after many days, God tells Jeremiah to go and get the waistband. And Jeremiah finds the waistband, and it is ruined and totally worthless. That is the parable. And then the Lord begins in verse 8, secondly, to apply uh, this parable. And that's where we'll spend the bulk of our time uh, this morning. The Lord explains the significance of this living parable. And he does so in two ways. There is a negative application in verses 8 through 10, and then there is a positive application in verse 11. So first of all, the negative application. You'll notice in verses especially 9 and 10, he presents four basic steps in falling away from God. You see, the linen waistband being ruined demonstrated God's people being led to ruination because of their foreign alliances and their allowance of false teachers and their rampant idolatry. And so the Lord demonstrates, I believe, in this passage, uh, not simply the immediate effects of this, which is idolatry, but the steps along the way. And you'll see it in verse 9 and 10, two very packed verses. The first step is pride. Look at verse 9. Thus says the Lord, So I will destroy the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. C.S. Lewis called pride the essential vice, the utmost evil. He said it was through pride that the devil became the devil. You see, every other sin says, I need something, or I want something. Pride says, I don't need anything, including God. And pride tends to make much of self and less of God. And pride is the foolish notion that I do not need God and that I can find meaning and fulfillment and purpose and significance in the world without Him. Sometimes pride demonstrates itself by boasting in materials or man. The Corinthians were like that. They boasted in man. They didn't look at their relationship with Jesus Christ as something to be cherished and something to be sought. They started forming a party spirit. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I am of Peter. And they found their sense of identity in someone else. But we can also look to material things. We can find our sense of identity in our money, in our job, in our education, in a lot of places. Or we could find our sense of identity with a human relationship. And these things, ladies and gentlemen, were never intended to give us our sense of who we are and why we're here. This is humanism. You remember the Greek philosopher Protagoras. He said, man is the measure of all things. 
And what he meant by that was the individual human being, rather than a God or an unchanging moral law, is the ultimate source of value and the ultimate reference point. It is whenever man rears his head up above God that he demonstrates pride. We can see this in Genesis as early as the Tower of Babel. You remember the people there said, let us build a tower that reaches all the way up to heaven. And it was without God because they wanted to make a name for themselves apart from God. Whenever we try to find our significance without God, we're on a runway track to trouble. Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel was the same way. He would say to himself, look what I did. How I built this glorious city of Babylon all by myself. And God struck him. And he turned into an animal for a period of time until he was shown that God was greater than him. And so Israel fell into this kind of pride. And they saw themselves without needing God. Now pride leads to autonomy. He says, I will destroy the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem, these people who refuse to listen to my words. You see, pride naturally leads to autonomy. If I do not believe that I need God, the first thing I do is dismiss His word from my life. This is what the Bible in Hebrews calls drifting. We begin to drift away from what God has said. And that's why the Bible tells us that we need to be in the Scripture at all times. Paul said to Timothy, be nourished in the Scripture. You need to know the Scriptures. And not just for information or data, but to read the Scriptures in a devotional way. God, it's God's Word, and He interacts with you through His Word. And so whenever we read the Word and we pray, Lord, uh, make Yourself real in this Word to me. Teach me things. Speak to my heart. God will. He always honors His Word. But you see, these people, because of their pride, began to practice this sense of autonomy. We don't need God and we don't need His Word. And they began to dispense with it. They saw no need for God, especially with regard to His assessment of their behavior and condition. That's what pride leads to. Later on in this book, Jeremiah 17, verse 5, he says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. The Bible makes it clear we're supposed to have hearts that burn with hunger for God and His Word. He said that in Joshua, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Then your way will be prosperous. Then you will enjoy success. And so their pride led to this autonomy. They stopped listening to God and they discarded His Word. Well, next in 10b, it led to stubbornness. Stubbornness of the heart. And that is arrogance. Pride leads to autonomy and autonomy almost always leads to an arrogant attitude. And that's what the Lord says. They refuse to listen to My words and they walk in the stubbornness of their hearts. If I dismiss God and His Word from my life, the only compass I have left is the inclinations of my heart. We're living in a, a culture nowadays that is following its heart. 
That is, doing anything and everything that feels good, regardless of what God may say about it. You know, Jeremiah says in another place, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Can you imagine if Jeremiah lived in our day with all the musicians and all the artists who present a picture of following your heart and doing what feels good and best to you? You can imagine that Jeremiah would be shunned. He wouldn't be listened to. That's the kind of world we live in. You cannot trust or follow your heart apart from God. Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts and fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit and sensuality and envy and slander and pride and foolishness. All of these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. You see, pride leads to autonomy. And when we're autonomous and we see ourselves as a self-contained entity, we become arrogant. You can see this in Cain's life. You remember when Cain slew his brother out in the field and God came and asked him, where is your brother? And Cain with arrogance said, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? He was arrogant and insolent toward God. Because you see, whenever pride takes over and autonomy slips in, we become arrogant toward the Lord. And we begin to have hard hearts, stubborn hearts, that wants to go in our direction. Well, pride leads to autonomy and autonomy to arrogance. But notice, fourthly and finally, it leads all of this to idolatry. They have gone after other gods, the end of verse 10 says. Ultimately, the Israelites found themselves worshiping carved images and fictional characters like the Queen of Heaven. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 1, 22 and 23. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Now that's a great commentary of the world that we live in today. Men and women turn away from God. They become autonomous. They become arrogant. And they practice idolatry. And before you know it, the normal, natural boundaries in every sphere are violated. Because man has no compass. Man has no sense of right and wrong. Right and wrong is whatever I want it to be. Justice all depends on whether or not it satisfies me. It's a scary world. We believers are to have confidence in going forward in the future and not shrink away from the world, but reach out with love, with the gospel. It's a great time to be a Christian and a great time to share the good news. Well, that is the negative application. This linen waistband was ruined. And God is saying, look at the linen waistband. Whenever you don't cling to me, you will drift away. You'll drift in pride. You'll become autonomous. You'll become arrogant. And before you know it, you'll be practicing idolatry. You'll be looking to something or someone other than God in order to make you feel secure, strong, and delivered from your difficulties. But notice the positive application, and this really is the heart of the text in verse 11. For as the waistband clings to the waist of a man, 
So I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be a people for renown and for praise and for glory. But they did not listen. Three things I want you to mention here. Number one, God created us to cling to Him. Notice that first part of verse 11. So I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me. God created His people to cling to Him. They were never meant to be independent. They were never meant to be autonomous. There was no place for pride. You've got the God of all creation over you and sending His love to you and saying, I will care for you. There's no reason to go to another source. Human beings were made to enjoy fellowship with God and each other. And from the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden, Adam enjoyed an injured fellowship with the Lord and with his companion Eve. They were naked and not ashamed. Even before Eve was made, God said, it's not good for man to be alone. That was true in terms of the woman that God created him, but it's also true across the board. We were not made to be alone. We are social creatures. But Adam and Eve sinned, and their sin led to estrangement from God and each other. Instead of enjoying unhindered fellowship with God and each other, they were ashamed. They saw they were naked. They had to get fig leaves to cover themselves, and they ran and tried to hide from God. That's the stress and the strain involved whenever we begin to drift away from the Lord. The story in the Bible is a story of redemption. God recording or reconciling human beings to himself and with each other through the gospel. God made us to be or have a God-shaped vacuum. And folks, if we don't cling to God, then we will find other things to cling to. Just like Romans 1 says. Recognize that you were created to cling to God. A second application. We glorify God when we cling to Him. Very interesting at the end of verse 11, the way it's written. That they might be for me a people for renown, for praise, and for glory. You can interpret that one of two ways, or both ways. You could say we glorify God when we cling to Him. You could also say God glorifies us when we cling to Him. Because glorification is part of being a believer. But first of all, we glorify God when we cling to Him. The new linen belt is an apt depiction of the first answer to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You realize as a child of God, your chief purpose and ultimate goal is to be wrapped around God's waist like a fashion accessory. Let that sink in. You are like a beautiful fashion accessory. You are like an ornament. You know, we were taking down the Christmas tree, and I really admire my wife. Over the years, she's been able to collect these very special Christmas ornaments. And uh, they're amazing. And every year that I see them, I enjoy them all the more. And they really beautify the tree. Even when we have one of these Charlie Brown models that's uh, shedding its needles and all that prematurely. Those wonderful ornaments always beautify whatever tree that we have. Well, that's the way you are with God. Your life, your story, 
Your background is an ornament for Almighty God and His grace in your life. And when we submit to God and surrender our lives to Him, we adorn God with glory. Isn't that beautiful? We glorify God when we cling to Him. When we get up in the morning and the first thing we do is acknowledge the Lord. We read His Word and we pray. We glorify God when we cling to Him. But secondly, God glorifies us when we cling to Him. As we glorify God, He glorifies us. You know, John 17, 22, the glory, Jesus says, the glory which you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. Paul said, man is the glory of God and the woman is the glory of the man. We were made to be glorious creatures, made in the image of God, and God values every child of His. And we see this especially in the life and work of Jesus Christ. You wonder if you have value before a holy God. Look at the cross. Look at the cross. God sees you with so much value that He gave His one and only Son to come and live a perfect life and then to die on a Roman cross so that He might give us His righteousness and He must take away all of our sins and give us forgiveness. God sent His Son to live and die. You are a treasured possession. Romans 8.17, Paul says, And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may be glorified with Him. Romans 8.21, Paul says that the creation itself also will be set free when Christ returns from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And even Peter in First Peter, or excuse me, Second Peter one four, he says, "By these, these precious and magnificent promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature." What marvelous statements! See, God is saying, when you live and cling to me through prayer, through word, through church attendance, through the normal means of grace, you glorify me, and I in turn will glorify you. Because you will find out what your purpose is, what my will is for your life. We find our true meaning and purpose and significance, ladies and gentlemen, when we cling to God in a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the human heart longs for. I believe this is what young people long for deep inside. You know, we're living in a a time of unprecedented uh, youth suicide. I think young people are lacking so much direction and their minds are turning to mush because all they do is stare at their phones and computers. And they don't know what their purpose is. They don't know what their significance is in this life. Or they wrap it around something that is very, very important and yet very, very temporal. I went to school with a young man named Greg. And his whole life was wrapped up in his college career. He got accepted at the School of Architecture at Auburn University. And he struggled with his grades. And then he got to a point where there was a semester where he had to make all A's in all of his classes. And he ended up with five A's and one B. He was devastated. He came home at Christmas time. I didn't know what was going on with him, but he did seem kind of aloof and distant. And a few days later, he took his own life. We all mourned. 
And I thought to myself, how could you possibly do that? We're talking about something so insignificant in the face of so much that is significant. Your college career. What are you basing your hope on? What are you clinging to as we move forward in 2023? I think some young people do that. They take their lives because they're trying to act out in a fleshly manner a spiritual principle. You see, real life is found in losing your life in Christ. That's what Paul says in Philippians 3.10 that we read this morning. That I may know Him, Christ, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death. As my life goes down in Christ's death and resurrection, His life comes up in me. And now I discover what my true purpose is, my meaning and my significance in life, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, Paul says. If you lose your life for Christ, you will find it. Too many young people these days are losing their lives. But it has nothing to do with Christ. They're hurting inside, and they want some meaning and significance, and they're clinging to something that is not going to last. Just like my friend. And they need to know Christ and find the joy and the purpose in submitting to Him and yielding to Him and becoming like Him in His death. Let me challenge you as you begin 2023, what areas of our lives indicate that we're not clinging to God? Have I made any foreign alliances that need to be severed and discarded? You know, foreign alliances don't just count for Assyria and Babylon. A foreign alliance is an alliance with something or someone in replacement of God. If I'm down and I'm lonely and I'm lacking uh, purpose and significance and I turn to alcohol and I abuse alcohol, that's a foreign alliance. If I find myself in love with somebody who is not my spouse, that is a foreign alliance. If I begin to have an idea to cheat on my taxes or to do something that I know is not right, that is not lawful or moral at work, I'm forming a foreign alliance. Are there any foreign alliances in our lives that need to be severed and discarded so that we can turn once again from that thing or that person and focus on who we really need to cling to? And that is the Lord Jesus. Am I searching for a sense of meaning and purpose and significance? If I am, and you hear this message today, turn to Christ. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And not only that, he will give you direction. He'll give you a sense of a strong and sound mind and spirit to go forward and live your life for his glory so that you become the ornament that God wants you to be. Are we living in such a way that God claims to worship, or the God that we claim to worship attracts admiration from those who know us? Or does God look at us and think, I can't be seen wearing a people like that? <laughs> what do our lives indicate? Cling to God, wherever you're at. Cling to God if you have problems and difficulties. Cling to Him if things are going well. Sometimes prosperity, good things, can lead us away not cling to God. How do I cling to God? 
It begins with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I realize that I need Him because I'm a sinner. And He loved me so much that He sent His Son to die for me. So that I might be joined and reconciled to this holy God based on the merits of Christ alone. That I may glorify Him with the rest of my life. Then He glorifies me by showing me His will and His ways and by finally taking me to Himself when I die or He returns, whichever one happens first. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we begin this new year, 2023, I pray that we would cling to You. Lord, if we're clinging to something or someone else, a foreign alliance that is getting in the way of our walk with you. Maybe we're clinging to bitterness or envy. There's all sorts of things that we can cling to. I pray that you would give us the presence of mind and the power to sever those alliances. That we might look to you and rest in you. That we might find strength and power in order to live for you. And that we might enjoy peace and joy in our hearts with a clear conscience because we're not trying to be proud and autonomous and drift away from you, Lord, but we are clinging to you with all of our might. Lord, help us as a church to cling to you for all of our needs and for your direction in the future. May you show us your glory. And may our church be a beautiful ornament on you so that people are led to meet you through the gospel. Lord, do all these things and more, and we'll give you the praise and glory and honor in all that you will do. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.